I'd like to have you turn to Colossians chapter 3. We are continuing on in our study of the book of Colossians. Uh, Those of you who have been with us long enough are probably wondering uh, when we are going to get on beyond chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And that will happen right after this study because we're going to finish our study of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Last week, we focused our attention on if you then be risen with Christ. And today, we're going to focus our attention on Christ, our life. Christ, our life. Now, rather than going fully and completely into some great review of the previous two chapters, uh, let's just begin by reading the text, and we'll kind of explain where we've been and where we're going. But in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, If ye then be risen with Christ. And he's telling the Colossian church that if they indeed are risen with Christ, they are believers in Jesus Christ. He says, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. I began last week's study with this statement. If there is anything that has changed everything for both the world and the believer in Jesus Christ, it can only be one thing. And that one thing is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That has changed it all. It was the Apostle Paul that made it crystal clear that we as believers identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not only here in Colossians, but in many other places and many other of his writings, especially in the book of Romans. But here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, just going back for a little bit of review. Paul says, rooted and built up in him. That we as believers are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, Jesus Christ, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. And I have to continue to emphasize the fact that that statement, and ye are complete in him, is saying that you are complete and perfect, or made perfect, in Jesus Christ. And in him alone. It is not Jesus plus something, or or plus anything, or plus any other person. It is Jesus Christ in him alone. In him you are complete which is the head, of course, of all principality and power. We established that in chapter 1, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the superiority of Jesus Christ, and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. The very fact that he is not just the Son of God, but that he is God the Son. And then he goes on, Paul says, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The cutting off of the flesh, but not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. There's that identification. We identify with his death. I mean, you don't get buried unless you're dead. Well, there are some who try to bury you first, but that's that's not always comfortable. But we identify with the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So when you think about it, there is nothing found in any world religion, in any philosophy, or even in a pseudo-Christian cult that perhaps could even closely compare with the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, especially as it pertains to his death, burial, and resurrection. And it begs the question as to the very purpose of God coming to this earth to take upon himself flesh. 
We might ask the question, why? Why did he do this? Now, I, I, I make that statement because, as I mentioned last time, the New Age Gnosticism that, uh, uh, that was championed and is championed by Oprah Winfrey, I, I mentioned her last week, that for over 30 years this has been what she has, 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 has faithfully uh, pushed uh, on her TV and radio programs. New Age authors, New Age writers, uh, uh, for, for, and I'm talking about 30 years. But she's championed this, stated her, in her own words what she considers the purpose of Jesus' coming, but it contradicts greatly that purpose. And this is what she said, and I quoted this last week. She said, Jesus came to show us Christ consciousness. That Jesus came to show us the way of the heart. And that Jesus came to show us the higher consciousness. What does the word of God say? What does God's word say? Well, let's just begin in verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The first letter of John to the church. Think about this. In 1 John 3, verse 8, he says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. That's a good way to start the verse. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. But here's the reason why he says it, because in verse, at the middle of verse 8, he says, for this purpose. This is where our ears need to perk up. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. For this purpose, the Son of God appeared. For this purpose, the Son of God came, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now we can go back to Colossians for just a moment and, and go back to chapter 2 and consider in a greater sense a, a, a bigger picture of, of his reason why he came. Colossians 2 verse 13 where Paul says to the church, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were dead uh, spiritually even though you were alive physically, it says, and you has he quickened together, which means he has made you alive together with him. Alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. That's a good reason for him to come. That those who have been sinners all their lives are now forgiven of their sins. And then he says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Which was the, the, the oppression, you know, the, the, the law, just, just the legalism of the law. And not only that, but then he came also to do what? Verse 15, having spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. These are great purposes for the Lord to come and take upon himself flesh as he did. But then Jesus himself in John chapter 12 just days, really, before he goes to the cross. He says in verses 23 to 32, lengthy passage, but we need to hear it. Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come <clears throat> that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. Take note of what he says here. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, here it is, for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. What was he saying? I came to die for you. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. 
Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. If I be lifted up from the earth, what means of execution was there in that time in which someone was lifted up to be seen, but in crucifixion? And then let's not forget these words of Paul to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And there's other places here. I just, you know, try to bring the list down a little bit. But in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. What a far cry from Jesus coming to show us Christ's consciousness, higher consciousness, the way of the heart. To be fair, He did come to show us the way of the heart, the heart that is renewed and made new by believing in Jesus Christ. And so Paul pressed the issue of identifying with Jesus' resurrection by stating in verse 1 of Colossians 3, if ye then be risen with Christ. In other words, if this is the case, if you are living now, on resurrection ground, and I talked about this last week, and I'll I'll mention it later on. But if you are living now on resurrection ground, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. It is obvious that these words were written under the inspiration of God and fit well within the context of Paul's reminder to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect. In other words, that the man of God may be complete. How are we complete? We are complete in Christ. And in Christ alone, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But notice the connection between Christ and his word. Let's never forget that Jesus is also called the word, isn't he? He's called the Logos in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I, I just want to mention that because of the statement that Paul is making. This is not to be taken as anything but inspired Word of God. So Paul's statement to the Colossians in verses 1 through 4 in this chapter is truly the Lord's masterpiece written magnificently beyond all mere human thought and, it, and still in a very specific context because it is designed to direct us away from all heretical and cultic solutions to the problem of deep-rooted, embedded sin. And what is the problem of man today? It's sin. It isn't that you haven't yet discovered the God within you. Which is what the New Age movement, by the way, the old lie, is trying to make its way, and by the way, has made its way into many churches today. What the apostle is saying is that we are to live above the world because we are risen with Christ. We are to live above the world. We are in this world, but we are no longer of the world. We deal with two things in our lives. We deal with the temptation of sin, or the temptations of sin, and we deal with our own temperament for the sinful will as it attacks us. We we deal with it on the outside and on the inside. In other words, the temptations of sin will certainly assail and attack us from without, which is, of course, outwardly. But our own temperament and our own character for the sinful will 
uh, or for the sinful will attack and overwhelm us from within. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul has told us very clearly that every day we wrestle, you know, the spirit wrestles against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. It's a constant battle. And the answer to all of these attacks is Christ and Christ alone and the Word of God. Let's go back to 1 John, in 1 John chapter 2, in verses 15 through 17. And this is a passage that most of us should be familiar with, where John says, love not the world, love not the cosmos, neither the things that are in the world. Now, to love here, of course, is to place all of your affections upon and to, and, to, and to love and embrace and to take hold of the things that are in the world. He says, love not the, the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that is a very strong and even ominous statement by John. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is a love of the world? For all that is in the world. Now listen to how he defines this. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. Is not of the Father. But is of the world. And the world passes away. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He that doeth the will of God. From the word of God. Will abide forever. Because we know that the word of God. Also abides forever. But once again. We have to go back to. The garden. You all know Genesis chapter 3 and see that the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life originated in the serpent's temptation of Eve. In Genesis 3 verse 6 and verse 7. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, You know what that is? That's the lust of the flesh. When she saw that the tree was good for food. Now remember, God had already told Adam, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Eve saw it and she said, it's good for food, the lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. And the lust of the eyes. Beautiful fruit. What do you say? Hey, listen, you're going to be going shopping pretty soon. Window shopping mostly, right? And you'll see something and go, I got to have that. All right, well, I'm not going to put this on you, but pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. Ah, the pride of life. What did the, what did the serpent say to Eve? Had, has God said, hath God said this? Did he really say this? Listen, he just, you, you, if you eat of that fruit, you will be like him. Knowing good and evil, you will be like God. What is the New Age movement telling you? You've got to find the God within. You'll be like God. And by the way, some of these teachers that, that have passed through Opus programs and on TV and, and radio, most of them, if not all of them, honestly believe that you will find, you will meet Adolf Hitler in heaven. Yeah, because even he, you know, had a God within type thing. That's a long, drawn-out process to come to that understanding. But yeah, that's what they believe. That's what's written in their books. To be like God. To make one wise. 
And then he goes on and says, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. What was, what was Adam doing all this time? He had his cell phone out there playing some game or something. I'm paying, not paying attention to what was going on. Or keeping up with the NFL. I don't know. I just, I just wonder. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. Now he was the one who was told by God before Eve even came to be. Don't eat of that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Because on the day that you eat it, you are going to die. Literally, what he said was, you are going to, you are going to begin to die. You will, you will die immediately spiritually. But now you, in your body, the, 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 the perfect body I created for you is going to begin to die. And the second law of thermodynamics kicked in. And everything started wearing away. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What at one time was beautiful and perfect and pure had now become a shame. And they try to cover themselves. And man trying to cover himself from his sin never going to work. It's never going to work. Now here's the fact that we need to come to grips with. We were all there. Facing the same temptations and consequently facing the same consequences. Why? Because when man fell, we all fell. And everyone born after were born in sin. But we would face the same consequences until Jesus came to put us who believe on the resurrection side of his death. That's resurrection ground. On the resurrection side of his death. Like I mentioned last time, when Lazarus was put on the, res- on the resurrection side of his own death, yeah, he was alive, but then he had to die again, physically. But when we are put on the resurrection side of Jesus' death, we will be promised resurrection life. And we will rise again. And we should never fail to count on that. Because God's word is true. Romans 6 verses 11 through 14 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, uh, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't give your, 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 the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. He says, yield yourselves unto God. Surrender yourselves unto God, as it were. As those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now just think that ten days before the Feast of Pentecost, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, but ten days before the Feast of Pentecost, the risen Lord would ascend into heaven in the presence of his disciples to sit where? To sit at his Father's right hand. That is where he is today. Now look at the text again. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So that is where he is today, and that is where the Holy Spirit would have us live. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. When we know that that is where we are to be right now, why are so many professing Christians hoping in vain to find something worthwhile here on earth amidst the muck and the mire of this world? Why? It's kind of like the, 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 the picture that John Bunyan painted in, in, in words, of course, in, in Pilgrim's Progress. 
Oh, a man that had a rake, and, 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 he's, and he's raking, and supposedly he's a believer, and he's, and he, but he's raking the ground and seeing what he can find on the ground. Well, all, all the while, there's an angel, angel hovering with a crown for him behind him, but he's not paying attention to what's above. Only on what is in the world. What are people hearing in the world today? Whether through social media or religious or spiritual programming or presentations, philo- philosophical debates or otherwise. Consider what people are listening to today. The New Age Gnostic tells people to look for the God or Christ within you. Look within you. Look within for the divine you. It's not about sin to them. It's only a sin if you don't realize that you have a God inside of you. And you yourself can be God. So they say, look within you. But then there is the opportunist, the entrepreneur, if you will. The opportunist will tell people to what? Look around you. Look around you. There are so many opportunities to become wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. Take hold of those things for yourself. Look within you. Look around you. And then comes the optimist. Who will tell folks, hey, look ahead. Look ahead. Don't let the dire and sour circumstances that you see around you diminish your positive desires. Press on to get all the good stuff that you can get. Always consider your glass half full and not half empty. Look within you. Look around you. Look ahead. But then, conversely, there is the pessimist who's shouting, Look out! There's trouble all around. We may only have 11 or 12 years left to save this planet. You crybabies. But glass is half empty, oh. What does the Lord say? He says, look up. Look up. First of all, Jesus himself said it best. He he said, look up and lift up your heads. Your redemption draweth nigh. That's before he goes to the cross. Look up. We are to seek those things which are above. We are to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. The reality was and is that the Gnostic cultists of the past and present are truly advising people to look down, to pick up a new set of chains and bow down before some new age guru who will put you in greater bondage by embracing the lies and the deceptions of the devil himself, who it is clear wants to be worshipped and exalted above all that is the true and living God himself. That's all that is. It's every lie and every deception of the devil from Isaiah chapter 14, in the person of of, of Lucifer, and in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, And certainly in the book of Revelation, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon. It is truly a matter of changing, of us changing. Not only our point of view, but seeing things no longer from our own perspective but now embracing God's perspective. We need to embrace God's perspective, God's point of view. Verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2 of our text. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. 
Paul used a word for affection that comes from the Greek root word phroneo, P-H-R-O-N-E-O, phroneo, which means, that root word itself means to exercise the mind, to be of the same mind, to have an intensive interest in what you set your mind to. Thinking of that definition of the root word itself, consider then what it says in verse 2, set your affection, exercise your mind toward, be of the same mind toward, have an intense interest in what you set your mind to, which in this particular case is on things above, not on things on the earth. And just as we will set our watch to the standard time to make it read correctly, so we are to set our minds and our affections to the risen Christ so that his life may be seen in us. Now that we are one with the risen Christ, the time for minding earthly things is past. It's past. Now that doesn't mean that we keep our heads in the clouds while we're living in this life. Because if we do that, then we become of no, uh, of no heavenly good to anyone. But we want to preach the gospel. We want, we want people to see the life of Jesus Christ in us. We want them to know who Jesus is. At the same time, we should always consider eternal values, eternal things. Now that we are one with the risen Christ, the time for minding earthly things is past. I want you to note the contrast between verse 2 of our text and Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Because we see here in in verse 2 once again, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your affections on things above. Now, consider this. Verse 17 of Philippians 3. Paul says, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. But then notice what he says, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. I'll tell you, when Paul tells us that he's weeping, you you need to take that to heart. He says that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And you look at that word mind in the Greek, and it's the same word for affections, phroneo. Why are professing believers putting their minds and their, the intensive interests in their hearts and in their minds on earthly things? We can see a contrast like this, by the way, in the fourth and fifth chapters of Genesis. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, we're not going to go there, but just, you know, that's your homework for for this week. Genesis 4 and 5, okay? We're out of chapter 3 now, just just so you'll know. We we spend a lot of time in Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, we're given the names of the proud, successful, and shameless sons of Cain who loved the world and its pleasures, who promoted the world's philosophies and perspectives, and were nonetheless vile, they were degenerate, they were reprobates, having set their affections on things below and living for what this world had to offer. And you know, that was that that group that would just continue on all the way up until chapters 10 and 11, where we find them going out into the plains of Shinar and building a tower in Babel. But see, those sons of Cain would eventually perish in the flood. On the other hand, Genesis 5 has another list of names. The names of the descendants of Seth. While we're told of the many who lived and died, they begat sons and daughters in the course of their lives. They lived so many years and then they died. Without having any history of accomplishments listed, 
one thing becomes evident, that those were people who were not living for this world. You'll see names like Methuselah, Enoch, and Noah. They were living for the world to come. They set their affections on things above, not on things on the earth. They were in the world, but not of the world. They became examples of what Paul would add in verses 3 and 4 of our text, Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For, you, for ye are dead, he says. Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. The apostle is making it clear that we have died to all that we once were as children of Adam. And now, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we do not have an independent life. Now, that's a hard statement to make in a, in a, in a country where, you know, often we have been encouraged to, you know, to live a, 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 a life of freedom and liberty and of rugged individualism. And, and that might work in the, in the, in the sense of, of culture and, and society, but folks... As believers in Jesus Christ, we don't have an independent life. Do you know why? Because Christ himself is our life. And that is exactly what the text says. When Christ, who is our life. Now let me just let you know that the words who is are in italics, which means that they're not in the original text. And so literally it says, when Christ, our life, shall appear. When Christ, our life, shall appear. And while it is true that we have this eternal life that is abiding in us, Jesus, who is the source and the sustainer of our life, is, is himself hidden there in the heavens in God the Father. And so our life is safe in his keeping. Now, I know if I ask this question, our hands all should go up. Wouldn't we want to be safe in his keeping? Amen? I think we should. And, and now, now, now wait, now, today. The fact of the matter is, if we are seeking things that are above, we are in his keeping now. And it brings to remembrance the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, in verses 27 to 30, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now that's pretty safe. Then you hear Jesus say, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's double safe. Then he says, I and my Father are one. Seek ye those things that are above. Where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of his Father. This kind of union, this kind of union with Christ produces a, a moral and a spiritual change in the believer that can be likened only to death, burial, and resurrection. And that is what Paul has been talking about here. If ye then be risen with Christ. In other words, we have already passed over to the other side of death. Physically in the flesh, we're still here. And we know that uh, we are still limited in, this, in the physical sense. By that second law of thermodynamics that we talked about. We're still all wearing away. I've been, I, I've been pastoring this church now for 35 years, and I was really young when I started. <laughs> and I looked young, and I felt young. 35 years later, I'm still young. Because of Jesus, not because of me, because of Jesus. It takes me a while in the morning to get to that state of mind. <laughs> to state that, you know. Oh, I'm so young, yes. <laughs> Everything's hurting. The point is, 
We've passed. We belong to him. Physically, we're still here. Spiritually, we're already over there. Veterans over there, right? But not over there in battle. We are over there in safety. There certainly is a place where a child could rest in the absolute calm of the eye of a hurricane. In the midst of a raging fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked about with the Son of God. Remember that in the book of Daniel? They're walking about in a fire. People are trying to see what's going on. Looks like the Son of God is with them. (laughs) It was the Son of God. It was Jesus. And it's no stretch to say that their lives were hid with Christ and God. Just as we're told here. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Beyond the reach of this world's anger and rage. More and more, the world's anger and rage is growing once again. Against the Jewish people. Against believers in Jesus Christ. And may I say true believers in Jesus Christ. Because there are many who are trying to compromise with the world. Compromise with the world in so many ways. That's the reason why we know that when we're looking at prophecy today, we're looking at something that's, that's building up to a one-world government, one-world religion as well. It's going to look religious, but the inside is just rotten. The world is angry. It's furious. And rages, rages over the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, so it was with the prophet Elijah. While in the center of a mighty whirlwind of fear. There in 1 Kings 19 verses 9 through 12. This, after this great victory, by the way, that Elijah had had on Mount Carmel. Against the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Jezebel. Jezebel was so angry at what had happened. She wanted Elijah to know that she, she was coming after him. And you would think that the, the great prophet of God that withstood all of these prophets would say, you're nothing because of my God. But he hears Jezebel's coming after him. And he runs. But listen carefully to this. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. Verse 9. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake The Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But notice this, and after the fire, a still, small voice. A still, small voice. Elijah's life was hid in Christ, in God. And so is ours. Our life is hid with Christ. In God. If you are then risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. For Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
And notice verse 4. When Christ, our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. You know, at this point, we, we may think of the rapture of the church and we're waiting, certainly, for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we're actively doing the things that the Lord would have us to do until he comes. But oftentimes, when we think of that event, we think of it as the end of the race. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly and snatch us and take us home. And that's the end of the race. But we need to consider a few things. Take, for example, Philippians 3, verse 21, where it says, who shall change our vile body. That's what's going to happen. He's going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Is that the end of the race? Or, or what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and of course he says a lot in, in chapter 15. There's a lot of verses there. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, Paul says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, as mortal must put on immortality. I mean, we must change. Or what he says in Romans 8, verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All of these things we ask then, well, okay, that's great, and, and, but isn't that the end of the race? See, he's conforming us into the image of his son every day. And as we surrender every day to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word, listen, he's doing that. Ultimately, we'll be conformed to the image of his son. Or then we listen to Jesus himself in John 14, verses 1 through 3, when he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. That sounds so wonderful, and, I, and it is. I quote this all the time, don't I? Because I love it so much, what Jesus says. But I realize that's not the end of the race. We know that Paul confirms what Jesus said there in John 14 by saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And that is something that we're doing even today. Listen, Jesus is coming. We want you to be comforted in knowing that he's coming for every believer. But is that the end of the race? I say to you that the rapture is just the beginning. We've all been to commencement ceremonies, graduations. They're called commencement ceremonies, which means they commence. You know, after you graduate, you go on. You, you press on into another line or uh, your career or whatever. You go more, you know, or you go to another school or, you know, higher learning or whatever. You know, so you commence on. You know, it, it doesn't end there. Just because you have a, 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 a cap and, and gown, you know, it's, it's not over. No, you move on. You commence. The rapture is just an introduction to the glories yet to be revealed in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen, he's coming back to the earth, to the very earth that rejected him, and all his saints are coming with him when he comes a second time. And we come in resurrection bodies. And we will be with him when he comes to back to this earth to, re- to rule and to reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem, in Sion, in Mount Zion, where the temple will be and where all the nations will come. A thousand years. Then after that, it's to be with the Lord forever. In his presence where there is no night, And we will be about his throne. 
worshiping. Consider Paul, and we'll close with this, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. He shall come to be glorified in his saints. The race isn't over. In a sense it is being the very fact that we are today in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ each and every day, and he with us, his spirit with us, upon us, and in us, his word with us every day, not only in, in book form, but hopefully in our minds and in our hearts. We have everything we need for life and godliness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Though this is a very heavy kind of way to end, let's also remember about Jesus' first coming and those precious words that I read to you and quote to you all the time to remember. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world first time, but that the world through him might be saved. That opportunity is still ours. If you don't know Jesus, you need to come to Jesus. You need to surrender this seeking of the things on this earth and begin to seek those things which are above. For Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. And set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you're dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory.